Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is between crime writer Emma Viskich and Felix Shannon. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel. Every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling to help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. To SER broadcast from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. These are unceded lands. Treaty has never been made with Australia's first peoples. Now, Emma Viskich is a musician and an author. Her series starring deaf PI Caleb Zelich has won Ned Kelly and David Awards and has a long list of shortlistings for other prizes. The latest in the Caleb Zelich series is Those Who Perish. Deaf PI Caleb Zelich has always been an outsider, estranged from family and friends, but when he receives a message that his brother Anton is in danger, Caleb sees it as his chance at redemption. He tracks Anton down to a small wind-punished island where secrets run deep and resentments deeper. A sniper starts terrorising the isolated community and the brothers must rely on each other like never before. Join me as we discover Emma Viskich in conversation with Felix Shannon. Her new novel is Those Who Perish. Emma Viskich is the Melbourne-based David and Ned Kelly award-winning author of the Caleb Zellick series of crime novels. Those Who Perish is the fourth novel in the series. A broken-down car and a sprint into his hometown of Resurrection Bay lands Caleb in the scope of an unknown sniper. A body is soon found in the water, and his investigator's eye pulls Caleb back into the orbit of his rehabilitating brother Anton. The secretive island community Ant has found refuge in is also under unspoken assault by rifle, and Caleb is torn between protecting himself, his partner and unborn child, and risking sabotaging his brother's recovery again. This, the fourth entry, is alleged to be the last in Caleb's story. Join me as we discover Emma Viskich's Those Who Perish. Now, Emma, before I'd done my duty and rolled into the intro, we were talking a little bit about the sound of this writing. Obviously, one of the big draws of Those Who Perish in the entire Caleb Zellick series is that Caleb is deaf. And your background as a musician has clearly given you just an understanding of sound that I've heard you reference in interviews before. It also comes across so clearly in the text. And you were just saying to me before we started about how Caleb doesn't actually pronounce the his last name the same way that everyone else would because of the it's like the the cotton ball mouth or I, I don't know the <laughs> cotton wool mouth. Yeah, it, it, I think it's more for so I've I've never um, put this in the books so people can pronounce Caleb's surname however they like, but in my name, uh, my mind, uh, Caleb's surname is Zelich. Like my surname is Viskic. It's a Croatian name. Uh, however, because of assimilation. Names get changed. Uh, my name's meant to have a, a cute accent on the end. You know, Caleb's is the same. He would pronounce it Zelic because he's all about, at first in the books, trying to fit in, trying to fit in with the hearing world, trying to fit in with a, you know, in, in a quote marks, normal world. So he, he just goes with the flow, whereas I, I pick people up on the pronunciation. Uh, and and yeah, fair enough them. too. Uh, fair enough. Co- copious times as they try and struggle <laughs> with the whole surname that begins with a V and has a ch on the end, even though it's not written. Yeah. We are talking about those who perish. The last book in the series, or at least alleged to be last. I've put alleged in my introduction there, 
because I wanted to talk about what motivated concluding Caleb's story. Was four books always the plan? Did it come out in the writing of this book in particular? Or was the finale always the motivating factor when you put pen to page for this particular novel? I knew right from the start that I wanted it to be a short series. Um, in as much as I thought that the books would ever be published, you know, which mm-hmm, I, I didn't mm-hmm. really. When I, when I was writing the very first one, Resurrection Bay, I, I pretty much assumed nobody in the world would ever read it. But at the same time, it obviously would get published, which is why, you know, I worked so hard on it. So there's that weird, you know, dichotomy of ideas, those opposing ideas in your brain when you're writing your first book. No one's going to read it. Everyone's going to read it. Your worst enemy is going to read it, you know, so you work really hard. <laughs> so I went into it with that idea that it'd be a really short, tightly held um, series because I wanted to write books where the characters grow and change mm. and that the events in them uh, have a deep impact on the characters, particularly Caleb, who's the, the hero of the books. It's very hard to sustain like a 20-book series when the characters are changing so much and you end up with this ridiculous amount of backstory that, you know, mm-hmm. previously on the Caleb Zellick series, you know, <laughs> two hours later you're still going. So I knew it would be short. Um, I wasn't quite sure until I was writing the second book in the series how many books. I was really stuck on it was either going to be three or five. Um, three didn't seem enough. Uh, five was too many because I knew who was going to feature in each book. The, the books are very much about Caleb, but they're also about the people in Caleb's life. Yeah. So I knew by that stage who was going to be in each book and five was actually felt like having <laughs> it actually took my publishers to say, you know you could write four. And it was like my mind was blown. It's like an even number. I just hadn't <laughs> occurred to me that I could do four. Yeah, it's like it's like the effect when you're changing the volume on the TV and you're like, it has to be on this exact number. Yeah, it's, it's never. I mean, it's well, that's a weird number. To, so once I realised it was going to be four, uh, I just I settled and I had the emotional arc of the series. So I've, I've known for ages. But but the um, the maybe the in brackets for now final is that um, more and more of as as I've gone on, I knew that those who perish was exactly the right ending for the series. But I could also see myself going away, writing some other things, doing the jump in time and doing another little, you know, trilogy or something. You, you notice I use an uneven number there. Yeah. A little trilogy or something uh, with a, yeah, checking out further down the track. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm very drawn to it, but I'm also, I'm very slow writer. So <laughs> who knows? Yeah, who knows? I mean, it, it always feels like you're a slow writer in the world of crime fiction where everyone's pumping out novels every four days. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, it's really good to talk to some people, with some writers who go, one every 10 years is enough for me. And I feel really efficient then, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, talking about that, like, personal journey of Caleb's, there's an all-too-literal, I guess, returning-to-home feel to those who perish. Caleb is back in Resurrection Bay, once again drawn into Anton's turbulent life via a cryptic text message hearkening back to his original outing, and he feels at risk of drawing his brother from a positively-directed recovery back into chaos like he's done before. You've almost given the Caleb direct chance to do over his past mistake, the first book in particular. Do you think he deserves that chance? Oh, we all deserve a second chance, don't we? Don't we? Maybe. Maybe. Yes. Yes, he does. I, I think um, the thing about Caleb is that he has the best intentions in the world. He just keeps getting in his own way, <laughs> really. And I think Perhaps the more important question with those who perished is whether his brother Anton thinks Caleb deserves a second chance, uh, which obviously I can't comment on because 
you know, spoilers. Exactly. But, but absolutely, the, the whole premise of the book was, yeah, that, that homecoming. And I think to a large degree, the whole series has been about um, Caleb finding his own place in the world, having it be about his direct family, going back to Resurrection Bay or going even smaller because it's actually set on an island near Resurrection Bay. That very much to me felt like that. Yeah, the, the final act of, of an opera, of a, of a series, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, there was a, there's a fantastic quote from Resurrection Bay, and this is off the top of my head, so forgive me if I've, I've gotten this wrong, but it's something along the lines of brothers can leave their whole lives unexamined for a very long time, their whole lives if they're lucky. And I thought that was really great because we obviously come back around, as you say there, with Anton getting the chance to kind of judge Caleb and see if he thinks he's worthy of redemption for the situation that they've ended up in. And there's a pretty tangible sense from Caleb in this novel that cosmic coincidence is the only reason that Caleb was the one that ended up with a stable, if dangerous, job and Anton is the addict. Mm. Anton clearly wants Caleb with him as he deals with his demons in this novel, but why can't Caleb see that at times? I One of the reasons I write is that I am absolutely fascinated by people. I'm just fascinated. I love to try and work out why people are the way they are. You know, I, I just want to take their skulls off and have a little, you know, tinker inside. Um, and, and one of the things that strikes me over and over again is that we are always our own worst enemies, even if we are very put together and um, have done a lot of work on our own personal journeys, because it's very, very hard to see our own histories and how they've impacted on us. And I think a lot, a lot of people are much, much better at dealing with things than perhaps Caleb is. Yeah. Um, absolutely no autobiographical input into these novels <laughs> at all, of course. I, I mean, I, I hope you're not diving from sniper fire <laughs> in your day-to-day. -day. <laughs> it's all metaphorical. So, yeah, I think it's really, really hard. And I think that the main problem with, with Caleb is not that he is deaf. It is not that he refuses to deal with his deafness, particularly in, you know, Resurrection Bay, the first book. It's actually his upbringing and his, his, his father who refused to accept him as he was. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think, yeah, at its heart it's about families and, yeah, finding your own place and, and that is absolutely why Caleb can't see it. Hopefully in Those Who Perish you can see him starting to understand his own motivations and his own uh his own flaws and reasons for them well yeah i mean there's there's such a familiar lens to that too you know i'm thinking about like jocks wrongs the rules of backyard crickets even like sherlock and mycroft Holmes, like re repeating the sins and what that splitting point is that drives siblings apart and I think that, you know, looking at the relationship with their father is really powerful there because there's so many moments through this where Anton, you know, whilst he's like starting to get along and understand his relationship with Caleb now that he's recovered a bit more, he'll still look at Caleb and go like, ah, oh, that's what dad would do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it just, it just kind of sucks. And it's the worst insult you can give someone sometimes, even if you absolutely love your parents and get on with well to say oh my god you're just like your father yeah. <laughs> you're just like your mother it's like oh it cuts you to the bone you know because mm. you you know that that's rarely said in a positive frame <laughs> it's, it's always the negative side I, I feel like the people who hear that in a positive lens really probably have a reflection to do anyway yeah well i mean it, it certainly i think with writers we tend to assume the worst yeah so. yeah <laughs> Thing. But the rules of backyard cricket, Jock Sarong's book that you just mentioned, I, I love that book. Uh, and it's one of those books that I, when people say, oh, what books uh, about siblings would you suggest? I, I always mention that one because I do love the, 
the, the relationship with the brothers between that one. It's, and it's such a familiar relationship, as you say. Anyone who's had, you know, siblings or cousins or, or, or just grown up in a big, messy family of any sort of variety, uh, yeah, they recognise that that love-hate push-pull of, of um, sibling relationships. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the word messy there really being the operative term, but I also felt that Anton was, like, yearning for a sense of normalcy to their relationship, but also kind of had to understand that normalcy is chaos in their relationship. Is that a solvable issue, do you think? Whether it's in those who perish or yeah, extremely, you know, philosophical <laughs> uh, in, in life, I mean, you are you are constantly in in your relationships um, evolving, or maybe you're too static and you want to evolve. And but but definitely, books to me anyway aren't that interesting unless there's conflict. Yeah, and the conflict can be resolved or not resolved. It depends on the book. But if there are people just sitting around being nice to each other the whole time. There's no, there's no tension there. So you want those magnets pushing each other apart and pulling each other together, and and that's where that's where things get interesting for me. And you have that on the bigger level. It's a, it's a crime novel, so there's you know there's death and murder, but it's it's on that you know small personal level that really interests me. Well, yeah, there's just such a big sense of everyone getting a do over in this novel, whether it's the numbats like <laughs> being shown the kind of tarnished imagery and like maybe wanting to start over, whether it's Anton getting back to rehab, whether it's Kat and Caleb working on their relationship, everyone has a chance at redemption as we were talking about earlier. But there are also some people in the town who really just won't take that opportunity like mrs naylor is just stuck back with her neighbor still being ivan even though he's long dead why are some people in the town so resistant to that and is that something that needs to be reflected on i think that's life i mean i cannot be incredibly pretentious right the world around me um and 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 some people don't change some people don't want to change and i mean we've all had those conversations where you've You've sat down to have the deep and meaningful with someone, and you've hit a brick wall. Mm-hmm. They, 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 empathy does not always is not always a two way street. <laughs> and plus, you know, uh, Mrs. Naylor, the the old you know family neighbour, um, it's good to have a character you can bounce things off. Yeah, it's a mirror. You can mirror whatever else is going on in the town with how she's behaving, and, and I can have a bit of fun with her as well. Yeah, she's not an incredibly sympathetic character. I don't feel that I need to be particularly sympathetic uh, to her. So, yeah, I can I can be, be a little bit mean with my humour, I think. I think it's also such an interesting approach because so often the emotional centre of a novel is the, like, the wise character, the one who people can go to and trust. But in this novel, I felt that Mrs. Naylor, while not super present, was the emotional centre while being a bit of a bad guy character. That was such a fascinating approach to me. Oh, that's a really interesting outlook. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that, that, that you know, the wise old woman who you go to for honesty, and you do get honesty from Mrs. Naylor. Uh, it might not be the truth, but it's, yeah. <laughs> it's her honesty. <laughs> yeah. I think to a certain extent, Kat's cousin Mick, who, who Caleb is very close to and, and uh, it gets dragged into the subplot with the um, football club, the, the Numbats, uh, Mick is is in many ways a moral signpost yeah. and, a, and a centre for, yeah, how, how things could be and maybe should be. Um, so in some ways he's the opposite of 
Mrs. Naylor. Well, I mean, and that's why it's so good when they keep running into each other. I mean, that happens a bit <laughs> later in the book, so I won't say specifically what, but there were mm. so many scenes where I was just so satisfied seeing Mick walk across the street and Mrs. Naylor being like, you get him. So some, of, uh, some of that is based on just little anecdotes I know from my own family over the years as well with various neighbours and I'm not Corey, but I have Corey family who I'm very close to and just that very um, wry, raw storytellings of their run-ins with various racist neighbours, shopkeepers, mm-hmm. people in the street, you know, and there's these stories just over the years going, oh, part of me goes, oh, my God, yeah, and part yeah. of me thinks that's extraordinary the way you've responded with incredible wit mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and, and sharp, you know, digs back at people. Um, yeah, just absolutely gobs me. Yeah, I think the the other thing on that angle of like a moral signpost for the story, there was a scene partway through the novel that I absolutely loved that I wanted to talk about when Caleb gets into the room with the two big city detectives who've come in to investigate the sniper shooting. And I, and I think Caleb in that moment was like, ah, cool, I've turned the page to this new chapter. And oh, it's a laundry list of his sins. Well, this is going to be the longest chapter in the book but it's over almost immediately. I think, was there something for you writing that scene, realizing that despite all you've put him through, that it was so easy to condense his sins to that short list? Yeah, it's it's interesting you picked out that scene because it it is, it's a very short chapter. And when I started it, it was actually just one of those chapters that had to be there. You know, it was was housekeeping. Mm. Okay, I have to do this. But obviously, when you're writing a book, you need to try and make even housekeeping, you know, here's here's what's happening in the plot. Let's yeah. recap. If at all possible, I want to make that do as much work as possible, whether it's uh, a light moment to relieve the tension because you because you need the ups and the downs or if it's an uh, insight into the character or a, a bit of a smokescreen, if, if possible, all three of those things. So, you know, as much work as I can make it do. It was one of those funny chapters that I went into it going, oh, okay, I've got to do this. Oh, I don't know how I'm going to make it interesting. And it wrote itself. Yeah. It's, it doesn't happen very often for me. I'm a huge, huge, huge rewriter. I mean, everything is rewritten so many times. But that one sort of wrote itself. And I, I obviously polished it over the time I was writing the book. But the, that sen- there's one particular sentence where one of the detectives, yeah, basically lists Caleb sins in very short in one sentence um and it was actually when I wrote that sentence I went oh and there we have it and we've basically got that's the core of the entire novel mm-hmm. and not just that not just that chapter um and I was like oh thank god because you you wait for those moments where you start understanding more what you're writing about yeah yeah uh so yes I was I was <laughs> I was so relieved yeah when I when I got that. Speaking of like scenes that write themselves, I've heard you talk in the past about how the way that you structure novels is that you almost start with like isolated islands of scenes and then paint the bridges between them. I guess where did that scene come in that map? Was it one that came out in the early structuralization or was it a, an island that showed up later? I love the way you say early in the structural. <laughs> everything, everything is structural to me uh, in that um, all my scenes are isolated. Uh, I don't have isolated scenes that I then work towards linearly. I wish to God I did. I try. <laughs> but it's always always a bit bloodless when yeah. I do that. I can feel that I'm making it. 
So I've been writing in, I used to, I've written in all sorts of software. I, I now write to, to at least start with in Scrivener. Yeah. Just I use 1% of what Scrivener can do and that's just down the left-hand side. I have different scenes, chapters, sentences, sometimes just a word, and I move them all around at various stages. Um, that particular scene with the detectives was probably a year into the writing where I just left it because I knew it had to happen. But I also knew that I didn't know what was going to happen in that scene yeah. until I knew what was happening at the end of the book. And I had no idea. I didn't know who the killers were. I didn't know how it was going to end. I mean, I knew the emotional arc of it, but I didn't know the specifics of, of what it was going to be, how it was going to get there or how I was going to get out of it. So, yeah, that, occasionally I know there's a, this scene has to happen here with these characters um, and it has to do this and I write it to myself in capital letters, often with a lot of exclamation marks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and and sometimes, uh, and please God, make it good. And then I <laughs> leave it until I know I what's mean, happening. I'll, con- I'll confess, my notes that I'm reading for- from for this interview still have one large, all caps, 32 size font. Better question than this, question mark, question mark, question mark. 32 font. That's, that's the trick. Like when people say, oh, how do you write a book? What, what advice would you give to beginner writers? 32 font mm-hmm. for questions in all caps to yourself. That's that's my answer. Yep, Make no, it better. I, I feel yeah. that. I feel that in my bones. <laughs> <laughs> I guess... Another thing that I wanted to talk about with that list of sins is that Caleb, sometimes through this novel, feels like he has moved past being an action hero. He's just ready to settle down and get off the pages of a thriller and spend his life with Kat, but he so easily, almost like animalistically, switches back into that role of the protagonist. Is there a tangible fear for you in moving on for, from Caleb as a writer? Uh, yes, but not for that reason. I think... Um it makes sense for Caleb's character to always revert back to action because he is uh, a person, and, and, and it goes, again, back to his father, you know, be better, do better. Um, I mean, his father had a saying, if your best isn't good enough, try harder, you know. So if that's at the core of you've just got to act. So he is working against that natural instinct. So, And that serves me very well as a writer because the worst thing in the world is having a passive protagonist. It's very, very hard to write an interesting book where the protagonist sits back and things happen to them. That's very handy. Uh, Any time that I feel that he's getting a little too um, settled and life is too happy, um, I can pretty much guarantee that there will come a moment where it feels like the right thing for him to do is, yeah, to get in his own way. Make a mess for himself, yeah. Yeah, I mean, part of the fun of that is that in trying to distinguish himself from his father, his father's motto of safety, efficiency, fun is explicitly the opposite of what he does. And it's so great that he is at the same time being so much like his father, but can't follow that core tenant. So we know he's still going to be different. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's that little Venn diagram, isn't it? Of, of the crossover with your, whoever's raised you, your parents or, or whatever, and um, the teachers in your life or the, the, the big influences, you are so like them. And yet you, you are so different because obviously you're, you're a different person uh, when it comes down to it. But to, to answer your question about the fears of moving on, I'm really relieved in that I'm not at all sick of writing Caleb's character or the world. I'm, I mean, I've been there in my head for so many years now. I am heavily invested. But I'm relieved that I don't feel that I'm running out the clock on it. I finished when I 
I'm really quite desperate to write more, but it feels right to finish it, um, which is why I've given myself the out of going and doing a later later series. The, the fear is the blank page, yeah. really, of I'm now faced with an entirely blank page of everything. Everything is 100% blank. And it, it, with each novel in the Caleb series, I have been faced with a blank page and I don't know what's going to happen in the next book, but at least I can bring the characters onto stage mm. and get them, you know, arguing, uh, drop a dead body in it. Oh, some, things start sort yeah, of yeah. happening. It really does help to have some parameters. Um, and, and that's one of the things I struggle most with as a writer. It's not coming up with ideas. It's limiting the ideas and not continually going off to the side streets, you know, to explore different ones. Oh, maybe this is better. No, that one was better. Oh, let me just try that one again. Oh, actually, there's a nice new one over there. Ten years later, you know, you haven't written a chapter. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I I try and come up with some rules for myself. Okay, you're going to try this for a week or, uh, okay, here's a thousand different things that can happen at this juncture. Choose one. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to have to choose them all. Yeah. I guess how, how do you thin down those choices? Because especially in a novel like this where you've painted an island of 70 characters all potentially is evenly a suspect. Do you have a 70-sided dice lying around the house? How do we pick? I've got a seven-sided dice. You know, it's funny you should say that, uh, but <laughs> I I actually downloaded an app, you know, one of those eight-ball apps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometimes when I got so stuck and I just couldn't decide which was the best, best way, I'd like I'd do the little shake and, and look at the, say, okay, should it be, should this person do this and I'd look at the app and it'd say no and I'd go you're wrong okay and I did <laughs> almost always do the opposite of what the the app told me to I think one of the best moments in in writing any of the books but I think particularly in 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 those who perish is those moments where um I'm doing something else moving usually you know running vacuuming whatever uh and something solves itself in my brain. Yeah. Sometimes it's the uh, solution to a plot hole I've, you know, dug myself into, but often it's um, just this brand new idea where I go, oh, if I do this, all these disparate elements come together and it just makes sense. And that's pretty much how I sort of get out of those moments of absolute, uh, there's a million different ways I can go. I'm not quite sure. And I write all of my books backwards, sideways, upside down. So it's not like I made that decision and right to the end. I then have to go back and retro-engineer everything so it makes sense. I mean, I ditch characters, chapters, put in new, to make it all be cohesive, yeah. basically. But once, once those decisions are there and feel right, you know, you've got that feeling in your gut, you just go, yeah, that's the thing then I'm solid. It's set in concrete. Sometimes that doesn't happen until right at the end. That's terrifying. But if I'm really lucky, it happens early-ish in the process. I mean, you were having a quip earlier about the kind of autobiographical uh, nature of Caleb. <laughs> and one thing that I'm reminded of there is that, you know, you've you've had to work for answers and even being handed answers, you still kind of don't feel about right until you've actually put in the work and done them yourself. Which reminds me a lot of Caleb and his struggle with the deaf community in Melbourne. You know, he was isolating himself from it for a lot of the series, but now in this scene, Alberto's is like a safe place for him. 
and he's going there to interrogate people because it's a place he feels like he has some power. Mm. Does it take fighting for something to really understand how valuable it is to us? I think that's definitely true for Caleb. I think it's sometimes true for me. Not always. I mean, you can really appreciate things without having to go through that big life-changing event. I mean, uh, but it, it can give a, a certain focus mm. to, to things. I mean, I think the last couple of years with COVID, definitely there have been a lot of people just taking stock of what they're doing in their life and going, wow, that's not been working for me for a long time or I'm, I've just been going down this track because that's what I expected. Uh, I know there's definitely been times in my life when I've I've gone, wow, I've, I've just been doing this thing and I haven't really seen that I've been doing it and I'm not liking it it's time to stop and fight for what I really want to do. But, like, again, I don't think it necessarily needs a terrible life event to happen. It's better in a book (laughs) if it is (laughs) because it makes it a lot more interesting. Yeah. And also it it does come down to human nature. Sometimes we do need a, you know, a a slap across the face to wake us up, as it were. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, speaking of Albertos there, I really love the scenes that we paint there, you know, from the the victim's son, basically, coming in and chastising Caleb for using the term deaf yeah. was beautiful. I absolutely loved it. And you've obviously done a lot of work over the series of being able to portray this accurately through, you know, learning sign language, speaking with people in the community. Harry in that scene feels so obviously like an example of what the outside world can be, that overly sanitized view of disabilities, of deafness. Is that something that you felt was important to challenge the whole way through the series? And how has the public evolved since Caleb's stories began? Yeah, I mean, I did. Um, In as much as writing for me is, as I say, about peering inside people's heads. Um, So it's not as a um, public service announcement, because uh, that can get really on the head, is like ugh, on the nose, I should say, <laughs> getting my body parts mixed up. That's right. One's on the other. It still counts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. They're connected. They're connected. It's fine. Um, but for me, the most important thing uh, about writing a character, particularly writing a character from an underrepresented community that I'm not a part of, is writing from a place of empathy. So I'm not writing about Caleb. I am Caleb when I'm writing, uh, even though he's like almost an opposite me in many, many respects. So I'm I'm inside his brains. I'm I'm witnessing the world through him. Mm. And then as I've gone and um, spoken to people uh, and and heard people's stories and and just read and witnessed things happening, one of the most important things is specificity and realness and honesty. If you don't feel like the world is real when you're reading it, you're not connecting to it. I mean, there's that empathy thing again. So as I witnessed, uh, participated in sometimes um, and heard stories about, yeah, people's uh, hearing people's reactions to deaf and harder hearing people, you can't not put that sort of interaction in, th- th- those awkward, embarrassing, sometimes funny, sometimes humiliating experiences uh, because that's what actually happens every day, day after day. You have those weird, uh, you know, uh, bashing up against each other's worlds. Um, and, and, look, and I did a lot of uh, 
in the early days, I did a lot of going out in the world with, you know, foam earbuds in my ears and, and trying to lip read. And Yeah, I, I remember a story about a scene from ordering a coffee landing in Resurrection Bay. <laughs> That's right, yeah. It's one of the very, very few times when, it, when a real-life event has made it directly into the pages. Usually mm-hmm. things are incredibly hidden, you know, but that one's like, that's going right in the book. <laughs> um, yeah, to be, to be in a cafe and I, I drink long blacks and I'm a huge snob. About. Oh, I mean, you live in Melbourne. You have to. Uh, yeah, I, I live in Melbourne. It's, it's the, yeah. the rules. Uh, I live in Melbourne. I'm a wog. I mean, it's just, it's it's law, you know. <laughs> so yeah, to be ordering a long black, trying to lip read, it's a little. There's a little bit of noise. There's music on, and ending up with cream in my coffee. It was just like, what 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 is happening? This is you know. <laughs> uh, but it was just one of those moments that I go, oh, this is. Um, beautifully uh, illustrates the many things that I have been experiencing and that I've heard other people experience. It's obviously not important, but it's it's one of those moments where, where you can have a bit of humour about it and also show that it's, it's bloody hard to lip read. It's an incredibly difficult skill. Well, yeah. I, one thing you do so well through the novel is put in these like differently written pieces of dialogue and narration that reflect the way that Caleb is lip reading or reflecting the like short, sharp bluntness that he both speaks and clearly thinks with. How did finding that, I guess, somewhat ironically sonic identity to Caleb come about over the course of the novel? Yeah, it was, that was an interesting uh, process. And I actually, it's one that I can remember really well. Uh, first of all, when I first started writing his character, I I really wasn't sure I could do it, um, both for technical reasons and just ethical. Could I do it? Yep. You know, and I didn't know enough about it. And I actually put the manuscript away. This is back in Resurrection Bay mm. for like months and months, maybe six months. Uh, when I finally went back to it, because I just I couldn't, the idea wouldn't leave me alone. You know, it was one of those obsessions. When, when I finally went into it and just really dug myself, you know, into it, I had written the whole draft so that it was readable, but I still hadn't found my voice. And I sort of understood what voice was, but I hadn't felt it yet. And then on a rewrite, there was actually, it was it was that exact scene. It was the scene in the cafe with Kat when he orders a coffee and gets the wrong uh, order back. I found my voice. Yeah. And, it, and it, was, it was sort of half my voice and half Caleb's voice. And it was just that um, shorter, blunter, and then I, and also very, very close third person. So the, the books are basically first person. Yeah. But I write them in third person. You never ever see something that Caleb cannot directly witness and visually witness or feel, not even, you know, over here. So then I went back and rewrote the whole thing and it just sort of settled. But though the funny thing is now I pick up Resurrection Bay and go, oh, no, too many words, cut them all out. <laughs> uh, it's got sparser as I've gone. So, no, too, uh, too foofy, uh, cut, cut, cut. So, yeah, I, it, it just um, it just took a lot of writing and then it, it just clicked. I went, yes, that's how Caleb would think, that's how he would speak and that's how he would yeah, witness the world. It was really weird to me too, because like I am a reader, you know, there's there's all of these posts that'll go around the internet that is like, here's a picture of Morgan Freeman. And now that you've seen Morgan Freeman, you'll read it in his voice. And I've never gotten any of those. That's not something that happens while I read, but I kind of did find it happening with Caleb, which was really, really fascinating. Just that like the structure oh, of his sentences, 
even kind of lent to that uh lent to that feeling of being like oh i i can tell that like this is a scene he's doing the cotton wool mouth thing in i i realized before caleb did it one moment in the book and that was fantastic i loved that oh excellent i love it when people do that um i really really i really like trying to write a scene where caleb actually doesn't know what's happening and the reader does and he gets there eventually but you're faster than him, so I absolutely love it when people do that. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's great. the other thing while we're talking about Caleb's journey with his hearing or lack thereof is that you've given him tinnitus in this book. And I I thought that that was a, a really interesting change to like give him a sonic burden as, uh, as a deaf character. And he comments on the irony of this in the book as well. Why was that the addition that you chose to make? Um, that's one of those ideas that's been in my head for years and years. Um, it's really common for people um, who are deaf or hard of hearing to have tinnitus, tinnitus, tinnitus. Different people say it differently. I say both ways and then get myself. It's like eerie, airy. I think it just depends on which continent you stood on. In Australia, we get to choose. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I'll, I'll, hang on, I'll just say it tinnitus in an Australian accent, a really common, yeah. a very common problem. So I knew that way back when I was writing Resurrection Bay and it's been in my head. And then I was talking to a screenwriter actually, and he wears hearing aids and he says, have you ever thought of giving him tinnitus? Because I get it a lot. And I went, funny, you should say that. Um, he said, you should. And I went, I will. <laughs> um, but it had to wait for the right moment. Um, so there are various times when I've wanted to do something but it's felt forced I could have given it to him in the second book but it felt like there was a lot going because in the second book Caleb's totally falling apart that's you know it's the reaction to all the events of, of, of Resurrection Bay so somewhere along the line I went that's the last book um he's he's gonna have that and uh, like you I don't get the the voices in my head in that specific way uh, it's more of a visceral thing for me yeah I don't have mental imagery or sound imagery I just it's it's all I feel it and every time I'm writing a scene where he's getting this squeal in his in his brain I'm tense I'm so tense and and the great thing about books is that when somebody reads them it's 50% what they're they're getting you know so so for you understanding what Caleb was you know doing that's you, you know. I mean, I can I can give you the hints, but you're doing that. Some people won't get it. Some people will. So some people with the tinnitus will be going, I'm so tense. Every time he says there's this noise and I'm going, excellent, I would like to make you tense now. And then I would like to take it away for periods of time as well. Can I, can I tell you a secret, Abba? It's not, not really a secret, yeah. but... I have a pair of the fancy high-tech noise-isolating headphones that I that I got a while ago because I've been struggling with tinnitus for a while, which is always a bit weird working in uh, working in audio. And there were there were so many moments like when Caleb was talking about how it's like it's auditory feedback that you get and it's not really there. I'm like, oh yeah, the doctor said that to me as well. And at some point, uh, I think a third of the way through the novel, I was like. I'm going to put those things on and just say, play silence. I just want to hear the tinnitus the whole way through this book. <laughs> and it was like the one of the weirdest decisions I've ever made while reading. But it, it just kind of was really visceral the entire time. And I, I kind of loved it. <laughs> 
Do you do you uh, like uh, uh, horror movies and jump scares no, and things? By any no. chance? Wow. Okay. Yeah. You just wanted to live in the moment. Yeah. It, wow. It was, it, I, I think it was just particularly because there were so many ways that Caleb described it that I was like, these are the exact things I would describe. This is the exact words my doctor gave me as a diagnosis. I'm like, I'm going to get in this man's head. I'm going to park park <laughs> my car in his driveway and ride it out to the end. Very healthy. <laughs> <laughs> I love it though. I love it. Make sure that my mm. siblings are all well behaved before we get too far into the future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, before we wrap up, I did have one spoilery question that I wanted to do. So, spoiler warning if you are listening in and haven't had the chance to read the novel yet, but I, I like ending these with a bit of a spoiler. We get to the end, we have this jump ahead. Like, Caleb hasn't quite redeemed himself fully by the end of the story, but then we sk- skip ahead and he resolves to several months in the future. And I thought that that was so weird that there's like this just question about what the resolution even is. Like we know where he's going. We know the journey he's going on. We know the things that he has to do to get there because the the main problem of the novel, uh, at least in the crime sense, has been solved. But why did you choose to put that just gap there? Uh, That was many, many months in the thinking about I tried resolving it all in the final chapter and it felt so busy and and so um so overladen with information uh that it, it felt like a chore that the reader would have to wade through and this person did this and I had a lot of housework to do in the final chapter you know why the baddie did this and who did that and is this person okay and not to even mention the subplot, which I had to, you know, um, and then we had all these personal relationships. And whenever I, some, sometimes when you're working on uh, on an important chapter, it it can it can take me a long time to work out is it the writing just needs to be better because really sometimes it is. Sometimes it's very complex, and you've just got to wait until you get that one sentence and you go, ah, oh, and you just you know make it very easy for the reader to read. It's taken you forever. Um, sometimes it's just that you are trying to do too much at once and that's often a problem for me. So after months of working on the final chapter, I, I thought to myself, listen, my rule is <laughs> no more than a couple of things should happen in any chapter unless it's a sudden, whoa, but look at this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that doesn't work so well in a, in a final chapter. You don't want a sudden, oh, my God, what? Uh, so I went, all right, what? What needs to be really established here? And I thought, well, mainly what's going to happen with Caleb and what's going to happen with Caleb's relationships. So once I made that decision, it's like, great, we have an epilogue. I hate prologues, but I love epilogues. So I thought, well, we'll just let the reader sit with the final chapter, have a little jump, not not years, just a few months, and just see where he is. And that gave me the ability to have that sense of, some things are, uh, are settled, some things are not settled, and that when you close the book, you get that sense, hopefully, that Caleb and all the other characters are just getting on with their lives. Yeah. You're just not looking at them anymore. So it gave me that, that ability to tie a few things more up, give you a sense of where he is, but also 
see what happens next. Yeah, I think it's also, it works so well because you've done the legwork. Like, because the novel has been about what the epilogue shows to some extent, even though the the question mark, the th- size 32 question mark is definitely still there, we kind of know what the answer to the question mark is going to be. We just have to find a way to picture it. And I, I really love that feel to it. It's always a relief when you find a way to come to a satisfying conclusion. And and obviously not all books will satisfy all people, but when it feels right to you as a writer and you go, yep, okay, that's it, it's just a (laughs) sense of great. Now I just need to do the grunt work to, to make it work. Well, fantastic. Emma, thank you so much for joining me here on Final Draft. It has been such a blast reading through Caleb Zellick's story. I had I had the bizarre experience. I should have mentioned this earlier, but I went from book one to book four and then through two and three. So everything's a bit jumbled up in my head, but it's been so good getting to finally like share all of the fun that I've had with this series here with you on the show. Uh, it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you. Thank you. Great questions. Those Who Perish is the fourth novel in the Caleb Zellick series of crime novels following Resurrection Bay and Fire Came Down and Darkness for Light. Those Who Perish is out in Australia with Echo Publishing. Andrew, thanks for having me. Back to you. That is it for this great conversation with Emma Viskich. Thank you so much, Felix Shannon, who brought us that conversation. If you need more Felix Shannon in your life, every Sunday night on Final sorry, on Final Draft, every Sunday night on 2SER, or search for the Death of the Reader podcast, you'll discover Felix taking you on a worldwide mystery tour. Emma Viskage's new book is Those Who Perish, and it's out now from Alan and Unwin. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch with us. You will find us on the socials. We are on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. If you subscribe wherever you are getting this podcast, you will get a new Great Conversation every week. You will get a book club every week. There will be bonuses occasionally. You need never be without new book content. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. And as always, happy reading. Bye now.